Hello, and welcome to Black Magic Treehouse, the podcast where we like our stories the same way we like our romantic partners, short and shivery. My name is Jose, and I am but one of your hosts, and I'm, jo- <laughs> I'm joined in up here in the treehouse with my esteemed colleague, Mr. Don't Call Me Sugar, Eric. How you doing, Eric? Hey, I'm great. I've never told anybody not to call me sugar, so. Oh, shit. Well, there goes that. An inaccurate nickname is what I say. I wonder how accurate it was for all the people who, you know, purportedly touted that as their nickname slash middle name slash whatever you might want to call it. It's like, how many people, like, can we get this on the record? Exactly how many people have called you sugar? Either explicitly or implicitly. Can we? Is this like a. Can we get yeah. a citation on that? <laughs> I was going through, um, as I am wont to do, I was going through old uh, yearbooks on archive.org the other day. And I was saving little oh ones. <laughs> I was saving some pages from it because I thought they were pretty funny. Um, would you let. This is a. <laughs> let me see. This has nothing to do with the book we're going to talk about. Now's as good as time today, as any. But. <laughs> Hell no, but this is the podcast of tangents. <laughs> this is from the 1972 South Windsor, Connecticut High School yearbook. Uh, and this is maybe my favorite <laughs> entry in the, you know, I don't remember doing this in my high school yearbook, even senior year. Um, but I assume some schools mm. still do this where they have like uh, the person's name and then it'll be like ambition, pet peeve, favorite saying, you know, right. what extracurricular things they're in. Um, and my favorite was one, Audrey Nelson, ambition, Kami Pinko, pet peeve, daughters of the American <laughs> Revolution. And her favorite saying is kind of anticlimactic because my favorite part was the ambition part. But favorite saying, well, you only live twice. Hmm. Yeah. Not quite as uh, thematically consistent with the first two <laughs> yeah. selections. But uh Wow. That it's is, fun to read through these special. and just... And they printed that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but she, for some reason, she did not show up on picture day. So she was on the page of like, all the seniors uh... not pictured. And then it has all of their information. Um, but it's fun to read through all of your books, or even modern ones, I guess, and kind of imagine like the characters that these people would be in, you know, the Fear Street High School book of their life. All right. Yeah, I don't recall doing that, um, or I should say seeing that either in my uh, senior year yearbook. In fact, uh, I did a, a, like a low-key uh, anarchist move where I did not get my senior picture taken, but I showed up like some kind of hideous meme throughout various pages of the actual yearbook, just like slinking my way through the shadows, stuffing cafeteria rolls into my face. And it, I, I, I like that. Uh, I like the air of mystery. I think that it generated. It's like, who was this person? You know, I'm only known as a caption. I'm not known as a senior proper in my senior year yearbook. So, um, you know, I guess you could, on the one hand, it's like, oh, that's sad. I don't have a nice picture. 
you know, or memories, but I kind of like the way it all turned out in the end. I'll say. Yeah, you will say. So anyway, um, I did very much enjoy that tangent, so thank you. I would say it was short and just a bit shivery to bring it on back to the topic of today's episode. Uh, And speaking of, you know, um, perhaps shadowy folkloric figures... Our book slash series, although we're just focusing on the first one in the series, spoiler alert, is uh, a series that started with a volume entitled Short and Shivery, 30 Chilling Tales. And this is a book of folklore, folks. These are not original stories. We're not in the kind of um, garish, goofy vein of uh, Fright Time or Scary Stories for Sleepovers or what have you. This is digging around in historical archives, musty, dusty volumes of forgotten lore, and uh, picking out the creepiest ones and refashioning them for a middle-grade audience. Um, So before I get into my whole thing with uh, this topic, Eric, just to clarify before we proceed, was this anything that you had previously heard of or were at all aware of? Um, and if not, what maybe just give us a little taste of a terrifying taste to quote uh, the last volume in the series. Um, and I feel like we touched on this before maybe, so hopefully we're not uh, retre- retreading on too much ground here. Um, what books of folklore do you recall pouring over in your youth? Well, going through it, I read the first one, and a couple of the stories were familiar to me, I think, just from other sources. Um, uh, Folktale books that I would pour over. That's a good question. There was a time that I got interested in fairy tales, which I may have said this on the Are You Afraid of the Dark episode already, was because of that episode where Bobcat Goldthwait was the Sandman. I know I said that because you did your Bobcat Goldthwait impression. <laughs> I'll pause for you to do it again. Hello. That's my Bobcat Goldthwait impression. You know, well, when you just like bump into him on the street. It's like he's here in the room with us right now. Um, yeah, so that in that... Hi, I'm Bobcat Goldthwait. In that episode, they talk about... It wasn't really the story itself so much as like in the preamble. They are like talking about how like... I don't even remember if they name a specific fairy tale or if the writers just made this up, but they're talking about a fairy tale where like, cause you know, Frank or whoever is like fairy tales. Those are for babies. And then one of the other, you know, uh, Betty Ann or whatever is like, no, there's that one where the guy chops up to the children with an ax. And then he likes, uh, spreads the blood all over the prince's lips so that when the, Everybody wakes up in the morning. They think the prince ate the children in the night and that kind of stuff. So that kind of opened up a whole world for me of scary fairy tales. And I remember going down, like I remember um, a volume that I had not previously paid attention to as a tough boy who didn't want to read girly stuff. We had a volume in the basement, a big thick collection of fairy tales with um, a picture of Little Red Riding Hood and on the cover uh, being, you know, seduced by the big bad wolf i mean you know Mm. being a maybe seduced isn't the right word because i don't want people to think it was like a bestiality book or something but um 
being waylaid. Well, I think there's a, a Freudian case for that. Yeah. I read a whole book about, what was that called? I read a whole book about like the various permutations of Little Red Riding Hood over the years and like what they say about, you know, mm. where we're at with feminism and things like that and how this story has been twisted mm. and, and recontextualized over the years. That was an interesting book if you're interested in uh, fairy tales. Um, but for folk tales specifically, obviously there was scary stories to tell in the dark was usually a collection of like different folkloric sources. Um, I don't really remember too many specific ones. I mean, I guess urban legends are kind of a form of folklore. We've talked about those on this show before too. And then, uh, I feel like I remember more stuff in like college. Like there was a book I went to Columbia Mm. college in Chicago, which had, um, Chicago has the Harold Washington library. It's like seven stories tall. Uh, and I didn't like my roommates. So I would just kind of go hang out there sometimes for like a full day. I remember they had a book called the screaming ghost and other stories by Carl Carmer, um, Mm. which had a permutation of one of the stories that is in short and shivery. Um, the end. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's, that is both like a really cool title for a book and a really cool name for an Arthur, Carl Carmer. I like that. Um, yeah. What? It had really good, uh, cool illustrations uh, too. If you ever find a copy of it. Oh yeah. What vintage was that book? Like, was it an older volume? Uh, it was from or fairly recent. Pro- not that re- it was probably like fifties or sixties. I would guess not having it in front of me to check. Oh, okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I noticed, um, I don't, I don't know how much I read through these as a kid when I first got this book, which I'll get into in a little bit, but, um, the author of the short and shivery series, or I should say the uh, folklorist, the retailer, uh, Robert D. Sansusi, or Suchi, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but I always said Sansusi. Uh, he includes very detailed story notes, or I should say source notes at the back of every volume explaining which volumes he, uh, of folklore he obtained these stories from. And it is interesting. Like I said, uh, as an adult, I don't know if I would have, my eyes would have glazed over these as a kid. Um, but it is uh, kind of neat seeing how for some stories, when he initially came across them, um, like there's one Native American story here, um, um, the Hunter in the Haunted Forest. It's interesting with that one. In the source notes, it says that uh, it was essentially three very brief anecdotes, more or less unrelated to each other, that he came across in a, a volume of lore. And then he just kind of strung them together into one cohesive narrative. And he talks about in other places how sometimes he like tightens up the pacing um, to just heighten the drama. So you know, these are true retellings in that they're not just reshorting them for a younger audience and, you know, paring the language down. In some ways, um, these are actually fairly literate retellings when you compare them to, say, scary stories to tell in the dark. And in fact, um, it's kind of funny because I remember reading an interview with Alvin Schwartz 
where he he didn't make mention of any uh, particular author or, you know, books. But in my mind, just because I knew of both of them, I couldn't help but feel like it was a it was a pointed criticism of, you know, short and shivery, maybe in particular, or books like it in general, where he was explaining that his whole purpose and setting the stories down the way he did in scary in the scary stories trilogy was that they were so pared down that they could be easily remembered and easily retold at gatherings like you know summer camp or sleepovers and he kind of made a jab at these you know the retellings like you see in short and shivery that are very literate um he's basically I, i wish i could you know get the uh maybe the more the more specifics of what he was saying down better but the spirit of his words was like you know that's a waste of energy <laughs> you know and kids i don't know if he went so far as to say that the you know kids wouldn't uh necessarily even enjoy it um in the same way that they need just kind of like a nice swift sharp shock of you know uh once you know, basically once upon a time you know tom was a farmer and he lived next to a witch and then one day he visited the witch like you would see in scary stories of tell in the dark um so i know i just kind of like weave through maybe three different points there but <laughs> taking a pit stop at that last one that i made um i'm curious to get your feelings on in general uh robert d sansusi's I guess you'd say aesthetic style. Like what, how how did you feel reading through this? Uh, you said you read the entirety of this book. Um, what was, what was your kind of take on that uh, in particular in light of some of the comments I just shared about from Mr. The late departed Mr. Schwartz. Um, it's funny to think of Alvin Schwartz as just a real person. <laughs> I know. Right? Who was just walking around. <laughs> I like to think that he, like every single anecdote that he told, whether it was scary or not, he would end it by like, and then the dry cleaner <laughs> lost my ticket. <laughs> and then turn like, to one of your friends and say, ah. <laughs> people are like, I can't handle coming to these dinner parties anymore. <laughs> Calm down, Alvin. Alvin. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, um, yeah, what'd you, th- what'd you think? Uh, I don't know that I had too much. Mm. Well, I guess I would say I did sort of feel like s- the literary style of, who wrote this? Robert, Robert. D. Sansusi. Yeah. Uh, there were some stories, particularly <laughs> the ones that took place in the American South, where I was like, I kind of wish that this was still mm. written in like the vernacular. That would have given it a bit more flavor. Um, his writing style. That's interesting you say that. <laughs> Why is that? Uh, well, um, the the first volume, Short and Shivery, I feel like I didn't, through, through the stories that I reread for this recording and what I remember of the other stories, I, um, I don't recall that any of them did that. Well, and, you know, you're saying so yourself. You read through the whole book and you didn't see anything like that. Um, however, the second volume, more short and shivery, starts off, one of the first stories is from Haiti, and it's called The Duppy, and it does something that I don't 
recall any of the other ones that I read doing, and I'm not sure if <laughs> I enjoyed that. Um, because let's see. So Jubal is the name of the boy, our hero, in this story, and his aunt passes away. And um, when the characters speak to each other, like his, the members of his family speak to each other, it's um, it's in vernacular, which I find interesting uh -oh. because, yeah, exactly. All through Short and Shivery, you know, we go from like Russia to uh, the American South, as you said, England. I mean, that kind of goes without saying colonial America. Um, and, you know, yeah, there isn't any like there there's no apostrophes ending words earlier than they would normally um to denote oh we must be in this place but that's not the case in the duppy um because we have some dialogue that starts off you know jubal is coming to his mother to ask you know the duppy what what is this what is this piece of folklore what's that duppy he asks his mother something you don't never want to meet up with she told him, something that can take hold of you if you're not careful, or if you don't believe. It a ghost, but not a ghost, his father said. Everyone have evil in him, but when he alive, his brain and his heart control that evil. After the spirit go away, that evil part be left behind. If it don't have nothing to keep it from doing whatever it want, it go out into the world where it do terrible things. Sound like an Adam Sandler character. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Hola. maybe we... <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Call the zoo! All the people at the zoo are very nice, penguin. They'll treat you real respectable-like. Uh, that was my, you know... I don't know what was worse, me attempting to read that in, you know, like a Haitian patois or just the fact that it was written in that way. I mean, I, th I think I gave justice. I think I did it justice uh, in the sense that it was like, wow, sure, that's slightly painful to read. Yeah. And now it was slightly painful for everyone to listen to. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I didn't read that uh, volume. It is a little strange to make that choice to not do vernacular <laughs> on any of the stories that come from white people land. Yeah. And then <laughs> suddenly make the jump when you're in Haiti. It's like, I feel like this would just make it more authentic and really put people in the, in, you know, give a sense of the place. Like I'm looking through uh, the Segua or the Segua. I don't know how to mm -hmm. pronounce. I'm sorry. Uh, from the first volume. I'm just kind of skimming From through it. Costa and you know, Rica. this is, this is 19. Yeah. This is 1987 guys. So we're still italicizing, you know, the Spanish words just to let people know when they're not seeing English. So senor, don't folks in San Jose know what the Segua is. She is a demon and heaven keep you from meeting her on the road. Yeah. So, you know, pretty straightforward guys. It's just written the way you would hear it in that language if you were speaking that language so again it's like mr sansusi did we really have to <laughs> change it when we went to haiti um and it's funny because in his introduction to the second volume he's like oh i was you know excited to be able to get the chance to do this because that means 
I was able to bring stories that I wasn't able to get into the first volume and give them their chance in the sun. And it's like, well, if this was one of them, maybe we should have just left it where it was, <laughs> at least in this particular uh in this particular uh retelling um but you know mm -hmm. i don't want to i don't want to be too hard on him uh just based on oh. that one example that i saw but i have more bad stuff to say oh cool cool um <laughs> but no i don't want to be too hard on him in in that light anyway um i don't know to what extent that same thing happened either through the rest of volume two or in the remaining two volumes of the series hopefully it didn't um and if it did you know hopefully it was just for like anthropologically accurate reasons but i feel kind of dirty just saying that so i just <laughs> hope that it didn't happen <laughs> too much again so anywho um so yeah that's that's my retort to your desire that some of the stories were maybe written oh. with a bit more vernacular it's like well here's how it could have gone <laughs> and oh, here's no. how it did go <laughs> be careful what you wish for <laughs> exactly uh but thankfully uh that none of that happens in the first volume which is going to be uh take up the width and breadth of uh our review for this episode so we showed you we lifted the veil we showed you the the screaming horrors that lay on the other side but now we're going to drop that curtain and walk slowly and silently back to the volume at hand don't worry, gentle listener. We got you. We got your back. Yep. Moonwalk right back to volume one. So anyway, what were we talking about? Well, I was going to say, mm -mm -mm. considering that you brought up Alvin Schwartz, uh, I was going to say that my main, I feel like every time we do these episodes, I'm always like, these are books for children. I shouldn't be so hard on them all the time. But at the same time, uh, I, I'm an excessively negative person. So... <laughs> My main takeaway from these books... Oh, hey, there you go. My main takeaway is that I think comparing these to scary stories to tell in the dark series, which I would have been reading at the same age that I would get a book like this out from the library, had I seen it, um, these stories, by comparison, feel very uh, neutered, if I can say that without offending all of the dogs and cats out there. And it may have just been... I was curious what your take on that was because I was wondering if I was projecting a little bit unfairly and I'll tell you why the first story in volume one is the robber bridegroom which is adapted from a grim fairy tale and um the story just to summarize the story real quick uh the robber bridegroom is about um there's a poor miller who lives in the forest with his daughter his ambition his life is or his one remaining hope in life is, I hope my daughter marries up so that she can, you know, have a better life than I can give her as a poor miller. And then a guy happens on by uh, bombing around in his very fine clothing, you know, clothing of the finest materials, a gentleman's clothing. And he's like, hey, man, your daughter is hot. Can I marry her? And the miller's like, you look like you're rich. Go right ahead. So the woman... The daughter goes back to this, the guy's den. Um, I forget. She must go there without him because she gets there and she meets a maid who lives there, like an old lady. And the lady's like doing all this housework and stuff. And the lady is, sees her and she's like, 
uh, don't trust this guy. He's a murderer and a thief, and he leads a whole band of murderers and thieves. He's not rich. That stuff he's wearing, he stole from people. Um, and then she tells the daughter, like, go go hide behind those barrels, and you'll see all the proof you need that this guy is not who he says he is. So the daughter hides behind these barrels. And in the grim fairy tale, what happens is she witnesses the band of marauders coming home with a young maiden, and they proceed to murder her and chop her up into little pieces. Um, in this story, I think what happens is that they just come home and they're like, look at all this gold we stole. And they put it in like a treasure chest or whatever. So she's like, aha, they are thieves. And then uh, anyway, the end of the story is like, and then we invite them to a dinner at my dad's house. We say we're going to feed them. And then they sit down and I forget what the exact mechanism. There's some trap at the end where they, she reveals to everybody like they're murderers and thieves. Let me scroll through the book and see if I can remember it. Yeah. Well, I think it was a ring, right? A ring from uh, the previous victim because oh, uh, he's right. made a habit of yes you are correct yeah and then okay so she recounts the story of what happened but she tells it as if she saw it in a dream um and then the thief is like silence how dare you say that um and then yeah she shows everybody the ring and then uh the guests at this banquet all sees him and turn him over to the King's soldiers and they hang him for a time. Anyway, that's the story of the Robert Redgroom. But the point of divergence there is that in one version, which is the grim version, there's a horrible murderer where a young woman is hacked up to pieces. And in this version that gets removed completely. So I think it kind of left a bad taste in my mouth that I may have unfairly um, projected mm. onto some of the following stories. Like, you know, what did you cut out of this one? DeSouci? My mortal enemy. <laughs> Sans Susi. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I do think that's fair. Um, because as we said... And also, these, uh, just real quick, by comparison, the, the Alvin Schwartz stories never pulled their punches. With regard to Gore, they were very much like... No. And then this guy got dragged along the ground until his feet burned off and he just had bloody stumps. The end. <laughs> Good night, kids. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's, you know, and speaking of fairy tales, I think that's um, why, in addition, of course, to Stephen Gamble's brain-melting illustrations and paintings for that book, um, I think that's why, to Schwartz's credit, and going along with his, uh, you know, folklorist philosophy, that I uh, quoted inadequately from that interview before. Um, I do think he has a point, um, not just for the purposes of being able to share these stories and retell them with ease or relative ease, but um, something that I think is a special quality of the original fairy tales, grim or otherwise, is that, you know, it's funny, you see on the internet all the time the... You know, it's like uh, every couple months or years, we have this realization again that, oh my God, the original Grimm fairy tales were some sick stuff. Here's a list of 13 of their craziest moments. Um, and, it, and it all sounds pretty horrible, 
But the thing that I think really powers them forward, the thing that I think really sticks with people, is not necessarily the fact that they're gore-fests in the traditional sense of them or the thinking of them. I feel like they're very much akin to something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where you're kind of filling in a, a lot more than you realize you are. Because, especially in the fairy tales, I don't think it's necessarily the... I think it's a combination. It's partly the incident. It's the thing that is happening. But I think, you know, 60 to 70% of the power or the effect, the power of the effect that's happening on you is also the delivery. And it's the same delivery that Schwartz had in Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, where it's just very almost matter-of-fact. It's very blunt. And then it just moves on to the next order of business. And that's what I think really gets people, and I think that's what really uh, riles them up or um, impacts them with the fairy tales. It's not just that, oh my god, you know, in the juniper tree, the, you know, the stepson uh, or the wicked stepmother lures her stepson uh, to look at the bottom of the treasure, you know, the trunk to get, you know, the gold or the fruit or whatever it is. And he looks in and then she slams the lid down and his head comes off. And, you know, it's like, wow, that's very shocking. But it's not like it's going into extreme detail and saying, oh, the rusty lid sliced through his, you know, neck and the blood was pouring everywhere. They just literally describe the incident in the barest terms, more or less, that, oh, you know, she closed the lid and his head came off and then she disposed of the body and threw it in the stew. And, you know, it's like it's just within two sentences but the fact that it's so brief it's like oh you know really grabs you by surprise and your mind the gears in your mind start working through those two sentences and and like i said filling in a lot more than uh i think people realize and they end up thinking that oh my god the you know the fairy tales were these blood drenched fables and and parables but really um it was just that they were very blunt and <laughs> they were very direct about, you know, the good and the bad things that happen to heroes and villains alike. Um, what say you to that? Yeah. And it kind of also operates on the um, tales from the crypt covers, you know, like mm-hmm. I remember hearing that uh, William Gaines, you know, when they were doing the whole, thing about like the seduction of the innocent can we sell these comic books you know all that that craze they had the cover that they held up with the woman's like severed head Mm -hmm. uh, being held up in frame and like you can see behind like her headless body on the floor um and they were like do you think this cover is in bad taste and he was like no i don't think so well what would make (laughs) it in bad taste well if you saw the blood dripping out of her neck uh i think it's kind of operates on that same where it's like seeing the aftermath of a thing or seeing a kind of, you know, technically bloodless version of something happen is like, it does kind of soften it in a weird way. Um, Cause I was thinking of, okay. So you remember the story of Harold from scary stories to tell in the dark. Now 
I feel like I remember hearing an audio book that changed some of the stories around. Hmm. So my memory of the way that the Harold story ends is that they come across like the neighbors or something, see Harold stretching out like, uh, you know, some kind of leather thing or whatever. Mm. And then they realize as they get closer that it's a bloody human skin and it used to belong to the guy who whatever was tormenting her. I really don't remember anything else about the story. <laughs> um, is that the way that it ended in the book? Uh, so it's two guys, they build hair, the Harold scarecrow and, you know, give it the name of another farmer that they don't care for. They're both tormenting it. Um, Harold starts kind of bubbling and bumping around <laughs> the farmhouse. And they're like, this is weird. We're going to leave now. Uh, and then one of them on the way down the road realizes, oh, no, our milking stool. We left it back at the house. This was before, you know, um, I guess they installed a Walmart uh, where they could get as many milking stools as they wanted. Uh, so they're like, wow, we need to get that back. So one of the farmers goes back. The other guy's waiting for him on the road. Oh, gee, so-and-so's taking a long time. Let me go see if everything's all right. And as he's walking towards the house, he sees Harold up on the roof. And I think, yeah, it says it pretty directly that, you know, he was just simply stretching a bloody human skin across, you know, the thatched roof. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's that's kind of how you can get away with it is like you don't have the descriptions of like Harold, you know, getting a mm -hmm. knife and slitting the guy's throat and like peeling all the skin off of the skeleton. It's just sort of like you come in on the aftermath and that sort of like softens it enough to where it's like, can we let kids read this? Ah, yeah, sure. <laughs> Why not? Why not? <laughs> We're not sharing all the gory details, just a little itty bit of them. Um, but getting back to your question, I think it is a fair assessment of um, Short and Shivery, the stories therein, that um, Robert D. Susie's approach and Alvin Schwartz's approach are pretty much polar opposites. Um, you get very much a feeling of, um, you know, I hate to keep going back to the descriptor of literary but you know that's how these stories are told you know they have their fair share of adjectives um a lot of characters are fleshed out and given personalities uh in to a degree that they certainly were not in you know works like schwartz's where sometimes you were lucky if you even got a name you know, sometimes it was just the boy met the man, and then the boy went to the house. Um, it, this, and uh, I actually reread one of the ones I reread for the recording was Sansusi's retelling of what's known in Schwartz's first book as The Girl Who Stood on a Grave. Here it's called Scared to Death, which, you know, speaking of critiques, it's like, Really, that's what you call the the story. It's kind of a twist ending. <laughs> when, but hey, whatever. Um, but yeah, and yeah, going back to what you were saying about oh, the American South. Uh, Sansusi's retelling takes place in the American South. Uh, I think they say it's like ten or so years after the Civil War. Uh, and yeah, there's like a the the opening scene and um, you know the girl who stood on a grave 
where in in all in almost all of Schwartz's retellings, the uh, time and place is usually very ambiguous. You can't quite get a feel for it. is this like the recent past or is this the distant past? Um, you know, I think it's like at a sleepover um, or some kind of like, you know, a young person's party <laughs> and scary stories to tell in the dark here. It's a ball taking place at a palatial southern plantation. And it's, you know, this coquettish 18 year old know-it-all um who is our our protagonist and it goes into a whole thing about how you know she's the 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 jewel of the evening all eyes turn to her she's got a bit of a you know uh, a bit of sass to her and she's got her eyes on this one tall dark guy but he's has a fiance and there's like a whole interplay between these three of like oh you know Mr. Tall, Dark, and Handsome uh, was in a carriage with his sweetheart passing the cemetery, and, oh, the horses got upset. We think they saw a ghost. Oh, my Lord, it was, I do declare, was the most frightening thing that has ever happened to me. And, you know, the heroine is like, oh, well, you know, I think that only happens to people who believe in ghosts in the first place. Oh, well, if you're so brave, Miss Know-It-All, why don't you go out there tonight and here, take this goblin-headed cane and stick it in the ground to prove to us you were there. Oh, will anybody escort me to the cemetery? And all the guys were like, oh, we're, we're not brave enough for that. Sorry, you're hot, but we're not brave enough for that. And she's like, well, fine, I'm gonna take this cane and you can all see it in the daylight when you have enough bravery to go to the cemetery so that's like it's like a whole expansive opening scene just to get us to they dared her to go (laughs) to the cemetery and just stick a cane into the ground and i guess it depends on you know your uh your preferences as a reader as a kid and i haven't even gotten to how i uh came into possession of this uh, book not that it's super important but it's a little bit of a a story in its own right um but if you were like me uh and i guess like me back then in the past and like me now um a certain part of me does appreciate that it is you know fun to read um to a certain extent you know sansusi's taking a little bit of creative and dramatic license and judging up what could be, you know, a very staid retelling where it's just placeholder characters and especially in something like this that has been, well, at the time of the writing, 1987, that was like five years after the first Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. So it might not have been as familiar um, then as it was now. But in any case, you know, making the argument that, say, a lot of people still knew that story in one form or another it is kind of neat that he said it in a specific time and place and he really you know gave it a a dramatist persona um that maybe other retellings didn't so i do appreciate that i do appreciate you know the um descriptive nature of a lot of these stories it really does make you feel like you're reading a narrative proper rather than just, you know, stumbling across this stuff on some internet listicle that's just giving you the major 
beats and it's like ah and there you go that's the story now go away um it it is nice that it's kind of contained within uh a mini drama of its own right but i don't know how you feel about that in the, in that light it's literary it's literary cool it's liter, liter literally cool yeah yep Um, yeah Uh, should we talk about some of this specific well it is funny folklore wise um these stories are kind of repetitive like there are some stories Mm. where it's like this is the same story shape just across two different cultures with two different you know boogie boogeyman in them or whatever um and there's a lot i noticed while i was reading uh, or maybe was reminded of like how much these stories were being told, not just as entertainment, but also as like to try and tell kids, you know, this is the correct way to be. And this is the incorrect way to be, mm-hmm. uh, especially girls. I don't yeah. want to be too woke about it, but <laughs> there's a lot of stories about girls being like not the optimal kind of girl as far as men are concerned and getting punished probably with death for it. <laughs> oh, where's the Dana when we need her for this segment? <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, you're right though. Uh and I I I didn't I didn't really realize that about how uh how often the ladies are punished in these stories, <laughs> which is kind of the opposite of, you know, um what you might see you know, going back to like Tales from the Crypt or, you know, EC Comics in general, they certainly had their share of villainesses, but more often than not, I think it was, you know, these cads and these, uh, you know, roguish males as opposed to, um, you know, the softer sex. Um, but yeah, here it's like, you know what? They suck. They can't get anything right. They're too selfish. They're, you know, uh, that's well, I guess that's really the biggest sin. They're just too <laughs> selfish. Uh, <laughs> too selfish, too lazy, yeah. um, too much of a flirt, you know. Mm. Mm-hmm. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh do you want to talk about any or do you have any larger points to make? I was gonna ask if you wanted to get into any of the specific stories that stood out to you. Yeah, I think that was my largest point um of distinction with this volume or volumes um just that that particular uh aesthetic approach to the the telling of the story so yeah we can dive into some of these bad boys proper and individually yeah i feel kind of bad because dived into one of them (laughs) i don't want to get on is it san san susi's i don't want to get on his case san susi I don't want to just be like, he's a terrible writer. But honestly, most of the stories that I remembered that stood out to me are ones that's like, oh, this is familiar. I've read this before. And less because mm-hmm. of like the way that he told them. I'm sorry if you're listening, San Susi. I don't mean to be too much of a dick about it. Well, um, as far as that point is concerned, I, I will let you know that um, he passed away a number of years ago. So anyway, it's funny that you, you know, mentioned that stuff about the robber bridegroom, because that's one of the stories that I remember the most vividly from this book. And maybe that was just by dint of the fact that it's the first one. Um, Just to very, very quickly um, 
backtrack to my personal history with Short and Shivery. This book and my copy is now free of its paperback cover. I think this just happened today, actually. I don't recall this <laughs> coming across this before. But uh, yeah, the pages are completely independent of the paperback cover now. Um, but this book was my final direct purchase from the Scholastic Book Fair when I was in elementary school. This was the one and only book that I purchased in fifth grade. I remember, I I can still picture the room. I can picture the time of the day. It was like the family night when we went in the evening. It was like in the, like, technology room. Uh, You know, it was staged in there, like just behind the, the media center. And I remember just standing there amidst the shelves, looking around, and this book was on the bottom shelf of one of the shelves. And it just, like, it was, you know, that, like, cheesy romantic cliche where two people's eyes lock. (laughs) I looked across the room, and I saw this cover staring at me from the bottom of that shelf. Blue cover, Catherine Colville, illustration, the big orange Halloweeny font, short and shivery. And the second I saw those words, you know, I, my dumb joke opening this episode. Oh, you know, we, it's the same way we prefer our romantic partners. But honestly, folks, when I saw those words, nothing could have connected to me more immediately <laughs> than seeing the pairing short and shivery. And I made a beeline across the room and I snatched up that book and my mom purchased it for me and that was it that was the start of my relationship with this book it was just like an immediate note of recognition and admiration a charming tale in its own right Um, and yeah I toured through this thing in the days that followed during 5th grade and yeah I remember like I don't know it's it does it does seem funny now looking back on it and hearing your criticism of the first story it's like oh i don't know it kind of creeped me out <laughs> you know as a fifth grader you know just just hearing the the very minimal description that oh yeah they're a band of thieves and murderers but just the whole uh, premise of this entrapped woman um being down below in the cellar while she hears these marauding jerks upstairs stomping around getting drunk demanding you know the robber bridegroom is where's my bride where's my bride to be you know it was it did come across as kind of scary to me um you know if it actually did retain the scene of some poor other nameless maiden being chopped up to pieces it probably would have uh just been that much more frightening um but yeah, I always had fond memories of that one. I guess just because it was also so unique compared to the other stories. Like there's that whole uh, plot point of the parrot that's hanging around. And, you know, like, Rawr! I don't even remember. It's like, you know, talking in annoying rhymes. <laughs> uh, and and the old woman herself, she, you know, is a previous victim, basically, of the robber bridegroom who blinded her. And has since kept her as his uh, housekeeper. 
So yeah, that detail was also very scary to me in of itself. I didn't need, you know, any gory details. It's like, God, that sounds freaking horrifying. Um, Just the idea of like these apparently unstoppable killers who, you know, would think nothing of blinding somebody or, you know, um, yeah, abducting countless others and, and all this other stuff. So it is funny that you were like, eh, wet fart. <laughs> it cheated. Yeah. Well, <laughs> do you want me to calm you down, Jose, with a hilarious parrot-related joke? Oh, sure. Please do. <laughs> so there's an old lady, and she buys a parrot. Uh, and uh, I think there's uh, – I'm just like how I can't recap these stories very well, I'm also very bad at telling jokes because I don't remember the details. Oh, perfect. But, I think the pet shop owner says, you know, something along the lines of like this parrot has an attitude. I don't know if you want him. And she's like, don't worry, I can handle it. And so she keeps like talking to the parrot. And every time she talks to the parrot, the parrot's like, fuck you. And she's like, hey, don't talk to me that way. And he's like, fuck you. And she's like, if you keep talking to that way, I'm going to put you in the freezer. And he goes, fuck you. So she puts him in the freezer and she waits for five minutes and then she opens up the freezer and she says, have you learned her lesson? And the parrot says, what did the chicken do? <laughs> That's good. So That's good. I'm looking at the table kind of, of contents. Clean, tidy ending. <laughs> the, there it, might now be... that you shared that you got, you got my mind worrying in a whole nother direction now. And now I have to ask the question, were you at all familiar and I believe I still have the URL right. <laughs> Were you at all familiar with humor.org? Was that something? Uh, not that I recall. That you ever trawled around? No. I remember looking through that in like sixth grade and it had like a collection of jokes like that that I thought were just really charming. I, I love I love story jokes um, like uh-huh. that. Um, but it also had like really random stuff like 15 funny things to do at the supermarket (laughs) and or you know at like walmart and i remember one of them it was just you know it's stuff that you see so commonly now but back then it was like wow there's a site that specializes in this kind of stupid stuff um but one of them was oh hide in one of the clothing racks and as somebody passes by start shouting pick me pick me (laughs) Yeah, I don't remember that site, but I remember when I was in junior high, there was like an email list that Mm. I was a part of that would send me basically that type of content, like, you know, uh, probably once a week or whatever. Um, Yeah, there was one. And then I, my way of making friends freshman year was to like collect all these into a Word document and then print it out. And then I just brought it to school and we shared it at the lunch table. Nice. That's exactly the kind of thing that I would have done. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then uh, the next year, that friend group had completely splintered apart in horrible, acrimonious agony. Uh, But, you know, we'll always have joke chain letter time. (laughs) Yep. They can't take that away from us. Wow. Well, thanks for that that uh diverting path just like perhaps one of the ones that our maiden might have taken in the robber bridegroom um so i guess you could count that as me talking about one story 
specifically, and we don't necessarily have to go in order. Um, but what's what's one that kind of caught your attention? Well, speaking of ones that I was familiar with, at least the shape mm. of, um, I'm going through the table of contents and a lot of them, like just from the title, I'm like, I don't even remember which one that was. Uh, <laughs> possibly because most of this book I read earlier this morning and I was just trying to get through the last like 100 pages <laughs> just to say I read it. Um, but there's... For all the good that that did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, what? Who's nobody listens to this anyway, so it's okay. Yeah, who cares? Um, I don't know. We got like 50 followers on Instagram, which is nice, but whatever. Yeah. Uh, I assume that's all you're doing because I have no idea how you get a following on Instagram. I am just following people whose pages look cool and somehow that, uh, like, yeah, I was surprised by <laughs> this is turning into another mid-episode self-promotion <laughs> inadvertently, I swear. Um, but yeah, I was like surprised how the Fright Time post got like 16 likes it's like wow and that's like super small potatoes compared to some of these other pages that we're following but you know we're a a new kid on the block so that's a really nice thing to see and especially know that other people uh remember this stuff and appreciate it but um yeah some of the people who are following us it's like i don't recall bumping into you at all so i'm gonna take that as like just organic growth and that's really cool thanks for being here so anyway Here's how you tell the difference between me and Jose on Instagram writing under the Black Magic Treehouse account. If it's a really funny comment, it's me. Oh, thank you. Thank you for <laughs> in much the same way that the fairy tales leave out the details and let the reader do the thinking for themselves. You just did the same for our <laughs> listeners. Really appreciate that. I think so, my comments are funny. <laughs> I actually don't see what comments you leave until I get a notification that somebody liked or responded to it. So you could be leaving a trail of hilarity in your wake like breadcrumbs that I'm just not privy to. Breadcrumbs, bringing it back. Uh, the Witch Cat is one that I enjoyed. But like I said, that mm-hmm. was one that I was already kind of familiar with because this one's from Virginia and it feels like kind of a variant on the story that um, is his name W. Earl Brown, the guy who created the Waltons and started out on the Twilight Zone? Oh, uh, oh doing Earl Hamner Jr. Oh, that's right. Is Who's that, W. Earl Brown? Good question. Pause while I Google it. Uh, w. The Earl Brown. Well, you said oh, the that's the actor who plays um, Beverly Kenny in uh, Scream. <laughs> kind of a similar wow. type, I guess. <laughs> Uh, yes, Earl Hamner Jr., yes. who wrote a lot of very bad episodes of The Twilight Zone. Um, I think sci-fi was just not Oh, I'm so thing, glad I'm... But... Yeah, so glad I'm not the only one who thinks that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. But, yeah. Did he Did he write The Bewitching Pool, the last episode? Oh, my God. My, sis, my sister liked that episode, and I'm like, what <laughs> is the matter with you? Yeah. <laughs> that is one of the worst... Oh, it was a so bad obnoxious. note. I don't think it's as bad as the, it's called like Black Leather Jackets or whatever, which is about a gang of Fonzies who are actually like aliens who want to take over the world or something. <laughs> I, but it is a bad note for the show I've to go I don't think I've actually watched that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't think I ever actually watched that one because I'm like, I can't bring myself. I know what I'm <laughs> getting into. Yeah. It's pretty terrible. But um, anyway, he did write yeah. maybe... Th- 
one of two like good hour long episodes is he wrote a one called mm. I don't remember if it's oh, called just yeah. like Jess Bell or like the tale of Jess Bell or whatever. Yes. But that's where um yep. Jess Bell. What's her name from Forbidden Planet is like a Southern Belle who wants to put a love spell on somebody or something. Anyway, it's this the same kind of and tale. Francis stars in and Francis. Forbidden Planet. Whoa. Thank you, Rocky Horror. Rocky Horror Picture Show. All right. Uh, anyway, that's yep, that coming to my aid. It's not exactly that story, but it's, you know, similar. It's about a witch lady and then mm-hmm. she's seducing some guy and then also simultaneous to that, all my all my chickens are getting eaten eaten. Oh no. That's how <laughs> they sound in Virginia. I wonder if these two things are related. And then uh chops off the attacking hides out in the barn chops off the cat's paw and then finds the witch lady, you know, dead with her hand cut off next door or whatever. So I always enjoy that kind of thing. Like I know that's the most cliched thing in horror is like chopping off a hand Mm. and then like, who's missing a hand now? And it's always a lady, but uh, I enjoy that, that trope. (laughs) I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah. uh, I think I remember a, different story from uh, uh, folklore I mean a different folkloric story recounted in a different volume uh, that I have fond memories of reading in elementary school called Ask the Bones are you familiar with that one? Nope. That's a really good one. I feel like it's uh, you know well possible source material for a future episode but um just to put a pin in it here. Um, I think that one is a good marriage, a good middle ground between what Sansusi's doing here and, um, you know, like the Schwartz approach where it it's literary, but it um, I feel like some of the stories I reread uh, in Short and Shivery, <laughs> in spite of the title of the volume, um, they sometimes feel a little overlong. It's like... I feel like, you know, we could have <laughs> trimmed this down a bit. Um, the ones in Axe the Bone, Axe the Bones feel just right. Like they got that Goldilocks um, amount of detail, but not at the um, not at the risk of uh, dampening the story at all. And, and those stories don't feel um, like they're playing it safe, but don't want to spoil a totally different book, uh, way ahead of the game. Crap. What were we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> werewolves or um, oh, oh, creatures oh, yeah, getting yeah, their yeah. hands paws cut off. Yeah. There was a, there was a story in there that I want, that I say one, one, uh, Jesus, that I want to say came from the middle East that I remember having a similar ending where it's like an old woman, like by the fireplace. And she's just gotten like her, you know, her hand chopped off and she's like hissing, like, how dare you find out that it was me, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's yeah, it is, it is fun. Um, you know, it's for as uh, hackneyed as it is, um, it's it's a good time. Uh-huh. It's It still delivers on, uh, on the visceral punch. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, the witch cat. Uh, so yeah, that's one that's familiar, that may be familiar to you. If you've read volumes of this kind of lore before, um, they're scared to death, which is the girl who stood on the grave. 
There's the Midnight Mass of the Dead, um, mm. which was also covered in a volume of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Um, I didn't reread that one in Short and Shivery, but I do appreciate that story where it kind of has that dawning sense of horror that it's not just, oh, I'm going to the spooky graveyard at night and I bump into a ghost. Um, the cool thing about that one is, you know, the woman in the story believes, you know, she's just, oh, this is just my usual morning routine of going to mass. But now I'm going to the one on midnight on this particular day. I, you know, I want to say it takes place around Christmas time. Uh, but then she has that dawning sense of horror where she realizes uh, some of these people I'm seeing, I haven't seen in quite a long time. <laughs> some and of these that's people. that's because they're dead. Yep. <laughs> Who are these people? Who are these people? And uh, they try to... It's my Seinfeld you know, impersonation. Yeah. Um, the Death Waltz, I think, is a familiar oh, one. Yeah. I wanted to talk about that one because yeah. that one was very familiar to me, but I remember because I didn't read these books, but I remember one when I was a kid that I'm pretty sure was not like a Western one. Cause this one takes place in Fort union. Uh, was it New Mexico? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I remember, yeah, that's one where, uh, a guy is really in love with a lady. She seems kind of indifferent to him, but for some reason, it was very strange the way it played out because he was like professing her love to her and she was like, ho-hum, I don't care about you, basically. Uh, but then he was like, I'm going to go into battle. What if I die? And she's like, oh, don't worry. I swear I won't marry anybody else. And he's like, okay, great. Now I can go war in in a peaceful mindset. Uh, and then, you know, he does get killed or at least goes missing. She does get remarried a very, you know, inappropriately short amount of time later. She marries some other guy. Um, corpse of Frank, what's his name? Like Frank Setter or something. Corpse bursts in with an axe gashed to the forehead. Uh, and then the band, like, or orchestra or whatever, like seemingly possessed and unaware of what they're doing, starts playing like a, a slow dirge that he waltzes. You know, she feels compelled to waltz with his corpse. And then by the end of the waltz, she's dead in his arms and he lays her down and he goes and they find his corpse later, you know, a uh, single axe gash in his head, murdered by Apaches. Um, and so I guess when I say war, what I mean is <laughs> I have to go participate in the genocide yeah. now. Goodbye. Uh, <laughs> um, Be back soon. BRB. <laughs> but anyway, yes, I remember reading a story that was very similar to that, that stuck in my head uh, for decades. I have no idea what it was from. And I don't think it was like a cowboys and Indians type story like that. I feel like it was like older. Cause I feel like what happened to the guy in that story was that he got like his carriage went over a cliff or something. But oh. the scene that I remember really vividly is like, yeah. okay, do you know what I'm talking about? So I guess I could have just asked you 10 I don't years know. ago what this was. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Get with the program. Um, when you said that, I realized, yes, um, I don't know. I, I imagine that the folklore variant preceded the story, because the story that I recall is by E. Nesbitt, and it's called John Charrington's Wedding, and it's in the Dark Descent anthology. 
is where I encountered it. And when I read it, I'm like, oh, this is like that one story from folklore where he promises to come back and then he does as a corpse and it's a whole big thing. So, yeah, I don't know if E. Nesbitt, um, that was their refashioning of, of the, you know, the folkloric story or, you know, chicken or the egg. I imagine that's how it went, but, and maybe that's probably not even the one you're talking about, but when you said story, I'm like, wait, there is a story like a, you know, a short story proper that an author Mm -hmm. wrote that's very much like this. And that's the one that comes to my mind. I wonder. Yeah. Cause the only other detail that I remember is, yeah, I remember the doors bursting open in the banquet hall when she gets remarried. But what I remember is like a pool of blood, like spreads on the front of her wedding dress. Um, Mm. And then she like falls over dead is the image that I remember. So clearly it is just a variation on this that somebody else retold in some other collection, but I have no idea what collection that was in. Yeah. That's the thing with these things. In both horror and melodrama. I love horrible deaths at a wedding, especially if it's the bride, (laughs) needless to say. Uh, Well, there we go again. Female getting punished as always. Yeah. Um, Just looking through to see if, there was anything familiar um lavender one of the last few stories in the book yes is pretty much with just extra details um i'm trying to think of what the heck it's called in scary stories to tell in the dark but it's the vanishing hitchhiker folks you know you see it countless times and all kinds of books like this so lavender is the vanishing hitchhiker we all know that one yeah. Um, yeah, that one is um that's the, the one I was referencing that I said I came across in uh The Screaming Ghost and other stories and um and also I remember okay. being told on uh do you remember that show Haunted History? Kind of. I don't think I ever really watched it myself, but uh, I I'm aware of it. Yeah, I watched that one every so often. That was a show that was like probably late 90s or early 2000s on the history channel was mm-hmm. just like telling different ghost stories from, you know, every episode would be about a different city or whatever. And that one was, I think that was haunted New York maybe, but yeah, they had a folklorist guy on. Mm. I must, I don't think it was this Mr. Sansusi, but they had a guy on to tell that specific <laughs> it variant. Might have been. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been, Hey, who knows? Um, and uh, yeah. yeah, so he told that story and that was one of my like, you know, before ASMR was a thing, I had that clip from YouTube that I would play over and over again because it, it was like a, a nice relaxing ghost story about mm. two boys picking up a hitchhiking girl. She's wearing a lavender dress. So she says, just call me lavender. And then, yeah, they show up at her house the next day because one of them gives her his jacket because she's cold. And then the lady's like, uh, that's my daughter. She's dead. And then they go out to the graveyard and they see... In this version, the jacket was like neatly folded on top of her grave. But I remember the jacket being, you know, placed on the gravestone, like mm-hmm. across the shoulders, if you will, of the headstone. Sure. Headstone. <laughs> anyway, you can move on. Oh, no, no worries. I, I, can, I can understand why um, that story in particular would kind of feel common because it's not overly uh, horrifying. It's... um. It is kind of calming in a way. It's like, well, we've had this eerie encounter, um, but it's almost like a good Samaritan story, you know? Yep. 
I feel like there was something else I was going to say. Oh, no, I was just going to comment, you know, on uh, how you said, oh, yeah, Haunted History was your jam back in the day. Back in my day, I was more of a Scariest Places on Earth kid. Was that the one on Fox Family? Yep, sitting on the couch in the middle of a sunny afternoon, just being terrified by Zelda Rubenstein's voice. Yes. (laughs) I remember that, too. Oh, good. Good times. 13 Nights of Halloween. That that was our thing. Um, so interestingly, there are two entries in the first short in Chivalry that are actually adaptations of literature in the same okay. way as yep. the great illustrated classics whose name I kept forgetting and changing in the Fry Time episode. Uh, I know what they are. We have The Adventure of the Germans. Yeah. Thanks. The Adventure of the German Student, uh, which is from a tale by Washington Irving. Uh, A very unnerving story, um, if you read the original. I can't attest to this adaptation as far as what Mr. Sansusi left out, what he did at, how effective it was. Irving. Unnerving. Your choice of words, not mine. Wow, that's... Wow. That's pretty, that's a deep cut right there. Nice job. Nice job. Um, And then the other one is, ooh, a story from Nathaniel Hawthorne, his most terrifying, Lady Eleanor's Mantle. Of course, I say that very facetiously. I do remember that being like my original reading in fifth grade of these stories. I got to the end of that one. I'm like, that was dumb. It's like, oh, she's old now. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, I know I just read this book, but can you refresh my memory which story that is? Uh, it's the one where, in kind of the same sense of um, the character from Scared to Death, very haughty, you know, young thing. Um, Lady Eleanor is of a similar disposition and position in life. She's like this rich lady very beautiful very um narcissistic um and i think it's a suitor that she's turned down time and again who basically ends up cursing her he's like you know what you may have all the beauty in the world but inside you're nothing nothing and if it wasn't yeah if it wasn't for this mantle that you wear or you know i don't know he says something about the mantle and basically she uh you know it's like a dorian gray kind of a thing where by the end of it she's like poor and penniless and like (laughs) i'm trying to remember like what the supernatural element is because it basically sounds like time has just passed um but i think it must it must it must happen in a sped up way because at the story's end where like the suitor is claiming his victory like i guess he's the same age so, yeah, I, I don't really remember what happens, but it's like, yep, that's the big finish. Like, oh, she's old and decrepit now. Ha! Shows her. And I was just, you know, at my desk in fifth grade, like, boo. <laughs> Who <Right>. cares? <laughs> I do uh, remember so, yeah, that that's one, Lady yeah. Eleanor's mantle. And then the one directly after that so... is maybe my favorite story of the collection, the Soldier and the Vampire, Ooh. a Russian folktale. Oh, yeah. I, I That was the first one I reread. That probably is my favorite. 
in this mm-hmm. collection. It's the one I like go to every time um, I pick up this book. It's a great one. I'll let you. I'll let you uh, run us through it. Yeah, I think I've said before on this podcast. I'm really charmed by like pre. I don't know where the cutoff would be. Maybe like pre Anne Rice vampire mythology, maybe even earlier than that. Um, but I love stories from back yeah. before it was a thing that like vampires would get burned up by sunlight, like pre film, pre kind of modern novel vampire mythology is really interesting to me. And I can't explain exactly why, mm-hmm. uh, but this one is about, um, God, I'm having trouble remembering any details again. We're in Russia. It's a guy, he's a soldier. He's going home from war. Uh, he stops at like an inn or a tavern or something. Um, and the guy who owns it is like, he's like, I got to get home to the place where I live. And the guy's like, no, don't walk through this land at night. You'll run into trouble. There's a vampire around these parts. Uh, but he's a wizard. Um, he was an evil wizard in life and then he died and he comes back to life or back to undeath as a vampire. Um I've seen enough in war, said the soldier. I've seen evil enough in war. Meeting a monster won't be so bad. Bleepity bloppity. And he goes home and uh, doesn't see the vampire at all. He's like, I guess I'm home free. But then his sister is dying. She got visited by the wizard. Um, She sleeps the sleep that will end in death tomorrow night when the creature uses her life to escape his grave once more. Uh, he's like, why didn't you destroy it? They're like, ah, we don't know where he is. So then the soldier is like walking around by the graveyard, just hoping he'll meet this vampire. Um, he meets a shadowy figure on the road. He pretends to be a wizard himself. Uh, so that this guy will think of him as a, a compatriot and not a victim. And he asks, like, how do you do this whole blood thing? Wizard guy. And the guy's like, I'll show you. Uh, they go into a clearing back to his grave. I don't know why they take him back to the grave. I don't think it has anything to do with, because the wizard just says, well, what I do is I drink from this flask. This is the girl's blood. He takes out a small flask of blood and he's like, this is her life. And if I drink it tomorrow at dawn, then, uh, she'll die and I'll get her life and I'll keep living on boopity boppity. Yeah. And then he's like, I know you're not a vampire like me because you're asking too many questions. And then they fight. Uh, The soldier is swinging his blade around because it says something about like, you know, the only thing that can keep a monster at bay is cold steel. Uh, They fight until the dawn comes up. Um, Light of dawn touches the tips of the tallest trees. Vampire falls lifeless to the ground. Uh, Soldier grabs the, the uh, flask of blood, builds a pyre, and then all these little insects and snakes and lizards and toads and such start crawling away. And soldier remembers, I have to kill every single one of these or else the vampire can escape if even one of these things gets away. So he burns all the things. Um, and then he takes the blood back, brings his sister back to life. And the village was never troubled by the vampire again. And with wedding bells of her and her fiance, not. Her and her brother. Yeah. <laughs> to clarify. <laughs> Finally. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Wedding bells, just like the end of Dracula. 
1931 version. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think um, to maybe answer part of your question, at least with my own reasonings, um, I also think uh, vampire lore of a particular vintage is really charming. What I like about it is that it's such a smorgasbord, you know, like vampires can do anything. They can be anything. They are repelled by just about everything. Um, It's very specific how you have to dispatch them, you know, it has to be a steak made from poplar or ash or, you know, whatever. And then you have to chop their head off and then you have to, burn them and make sure like the story says make sure you get all the different parts and throw them into the fire and scatter their ashes to the four winds it's all so like very detailed and um yeah it's just like there's so many things going on here like yeah you know the vampires can transform themselves into anything this story um puts me in mind of another bit of folklore that uh, I read right around the same time, actually. I think I had a um, a book of ghost stories that was just called Ghosts um, that was edited by Marvin Kay. And one of the entries was, I believe it was called A Quartet, uh, or, oh, excuse me, A Quartet of Strange Things by Bernhardt J. Herwood, who was um, basically a precursor to Alvin Schwartz and Robert D. Sanssouci because um, he published a number of books of creepy, scary folklore that, from what I've heard and seen, were ostensibly for kids, you know, in that 1970, 1960s, 1970s way. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to, you know, see now in hindsight, it's like, were these supposed to be for kids? Cause they look like they could have just as easily been for adults. Like the delineation was not as clear back then, uh, for, for certain works as it is now. Um, but I guess this was like a sampler from maybe one of his books that was reprinted in um, in this ghost anthology. And one of the entries from the court quartet of strange things, it's funny I think um, Robert De Sanssouci actually retold two of the four in later volumes. And it's kind of funny because I'm saying, oh, this one reminds me of one of them uh, because it's also a vampire story. It's uh, Are you familiar with the, f- the name the Crogland Grange vampire? Nope. No? Okay. Yep, the Kroglin Grange vampire. Um, it's kind of a similar story where it's like, yeah, this wizened, you know, desiccated corpse of a vampire that is plaguing this one family. Uh, he's like creeping in through the window at night, stealing the lifeblood of the youngest sister, adult sister of the family. And it's her two brothers who are desperately trying to vanquish this undead foe. Um, but just like, yeah, the general grottiness <laughs> of the vampire is, um, is a quality from both stories that, uh, that I always liked. Cause yeah, he's completely unromantic. He's like smells of damp earth and mold <laughs> and he's streaked with dirt and, you know, he's got like scraggly nails and teeth. He's just the complete antithesis of, you know, your Byronic 
romantic vampire. Um, yeah. And, you know, refreshing <laughs> in light of that. Oh, man, we totally forgot to mention Taylor Poe. That's a, another super familiar one. I don't know if I forgot so much as I just didn't care much about it. <laughs> didn't care. That's a great story. I like Super the form creepy. better when it's the guy wears who's got my bloody toe or whatever. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, that's the golden arm. Uh, but yeah, Taylor Poe is so, sh- I mean, it's so strange, at least for the fact that like the uh, supernatural perpetrator is completely whacked out. It's like an escapee from Dr. Moreau's House of Pain. You know, it's got like a fox face, but a monkey body. And it kills all of the old man's hunting dogs. And then it creeps into his room and jumps on his chest and basically tears its tail out of his stomach. I mean, it's... Well, to be fair, like, that did happen in other golden arm variants. Sure. When uh, people ate <laughs> the thing that uh, the the... the th- the monster was coming back for. So I guess it's not super unique, but I always thought it was fairly chilling, but uh, yeah, you, you go, you go ahead with your thing. Well, real quick, I just wanted to talk about the green mist, which is interesting because it's not even really scary. Mm. Um, It's about, yeah, it's, I'm not going to do as long a recap as I did for the vampire one, but basically just about a girl who, um, is really sick and her mom's worried that she's dying. And then it's like winter and her mom's like, wait for the green mist. And from the title, I thought green mist was going to be like, it's got all kinds of horrible spirits in it or something. But green mist is basically just like, it turns the land from winter to spring, you know? Um, So then the green mist, and then the girl says something along the lines of like, if I could be uh shoot, let me look it up. Cause I forget what she exactly Wants to live as long as. See if I can help you out. Okay. Oh, if I could only live as long as one of the cowslips or cow's lips. <laughs> right. That grow by the door each spring. I swear I'd be content. Hush now, child. Hush, her mother cautioned. You don't know who might hear you say such a thing. Because uh, the old woman knew that there were always bogies around. Wicked goblins who made mischief and grief for their human neighbors. It's funny. And thinking back on the story, I, I I always thought it was fairies. I thought it was the wee folk mm-hmm. who made her wish come true, but I guess it's bogeys. Excuse me. Yeah. I mean, it's not something that the fairies wouldn't do, but exactly. Yeah. She seems to get better with the advent of spring, but she has this, what seems like perhaps a superstitious, idea that like if anybody does anything to those cowslips now i'll die too like my life is tied to those um so her mom's all like okay i won't touch them uh and cowslips apparently are fragrant yellow blossoms for anybody who's just picturing like cow's lips blooming out of a stem of or something (laughs) um but yeah that one ends with a guy who means well uh, a guy who wants to make her a crown of flowers, but of course he picks the cow slips. And so he brings him to the girl and she's like, you've killed me. And she falls over dead. So that one's a melancholy one more than a scary <gasps> one, but uh, maybe just because it was kind of a change of pace. That one stood out to me. Mm. 
Now you talk about whatever you want to talk yeah, about. Yeah. I... Oh, cool. That's how this works. That's how a conversation <laughs> works. Thank you. Um, that is admittedly another one that, you know, as a dumb fifth grade boy, I was like, boo, bogeys and flowers. <laughs> this story sucks. Yeah. I probably would have been the same way if I read this as a younger, as a, in a younger man's clothes, but I didn't. So Mm -hmm. that's my opinion. Yeah. And I guess, you know, it has shaded my, uh, my opinion of it. Cause I'd never really have gone back to reread that one. Just like I didn't go back to reread it for this episode. Um, but just a few others to close us out. Uh, I really appreciate the inclusion of some of these, um, cause even though Eric mentioned how there's a lot of carryover, um, a lot of tropes that show up in one variation or another throughout these stories, especially when it's like a story that's predicated on the writing of a wrong, um, you know, those kind of all have the same tenor to them, the same kind of arc, um, but some of these are, are pretty interesting. Um, I really liked Billy Mosby's Night Ride uh, just because I always appreciate yes. some New England witchcraft. Yeah, that um, one was a good one. Although I was picturing, <laughs> I was definitely picturing Bill Cosby the whole time oh instead God. of Bill Mosby, <laughs> <laughs> which did not enhance the story really. <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah, Billy Mosby in the story is a young lad <laughs> who gets uh um it, who gets voluntold to uh basically well, it's funny. It's the uh the warlock at the center of the story, Francis Wolcott, who has an amazing name, and I love how Robert D. Sanssouci refers to him by his full name. Like, every time we see him, it's like, said Francis Wolcott. It's like, we know. <laughs> You've already told us who he was. And then, what? And then, do you know what Francis Wolcott did? Well, he picked up Bill Mosby, Bill Cosby, by his suspenders and threw him on <laughs> the back of that horse. Um, but yeah, I love New England witchcraft. Um, and, you know, even though this... This isn't um, the story of Washington Irving's that Robert D. Sansusi adapted. It feels very much like a Washington Irving story in the Devil and Tom Walker mold, which is, you know, also um, a bit of a an illusion because, hey, guess what, folks? In a f- in another volume of Short and Shivery, Robert D. Sansusi adapted the Devil and Tom Walker. Um, but yeah, I love um I love stories of New England witchcraft that to me they have this rambunctious quality to them. Um I know this has been like brought up in essays before about how like horror slash ghost stories slash supernaturalism in like Britain, you know, the UK versus America. Um the I I feel like, you know, maybe the introduction to the dark descent brought this up or maybe it was American supernatural tales. It was one of those damn things, but talking about the relative youth of America as a country compared to, you know, uh, the British Isles, 
and how they have a lot more antiquity. Uh, it's always like these spirits rattling around in chains, um, you know, things like that. Runes, you know, going into the more folk horror vibe. Uh, whereas in America, it's like, well, we kind of had to build our own. There wasn't much here already. You know, we were too busy committing our own, uh, you know, historical horrors at the time for us to rely on uh, to rely on them for the sources of our fictional hauntings. Um, so I, I, I always appreciate stories that have that kind of rough and tumble early America quality to them. Uh, and here, yeah, Bill, Billy Mosby is a young boy. He goes on a night ride. Um, it's, it's, it's just totally charming. Francis Wolcott, the warlock conjures 13 night riders from hell from basically these little bales of hay or oat straw, I think it's called. Um, and yeah, Billy Mosby gets thrown on a horse and the night rider, the, the creepy detail too, um, when the night rider's horse gallops across the countryside, it's completely silent. I thought that was kind of an eerie touch. It's like, ooh, that's that's weird too. <laughs> Picture. Sure. I thought so. <laughs> I didn't care about this part. story until the end, which I thought was nice and creepy. Uh well, I mean, yeah, it is nice and creepy, but I think what precedes it is pretty interesting. Um nope. Well, whatever. Okay, folks, you know, I like the You wanna ride this horse? Billy How about Mosby... I super glue you to this horse there? What a warlock. Oh my god, it's, magical powers. He's he's <laughs> he's hellishly magnetized to the horse. You know, they, I mean, that's like something out of a nightmare. I guess some of us are just immune to those kinds of scares. But uh yeah, no, I thought that was super charming. And then yeah, basically a night rider slash Satan himself comes to claim Francis Wolcott, the warlock, mm. uh, at the end of the story. And uh, Billy sees his face in a flash of lightning. And, you know, his face is the color of raw meat. And he has two eyes like burning coals. And there's a great stench of sulfur. So, you know, all of that good stuff in that there story. Um, two stories, I'll kind of encapsulate, I'll lump them together. Um, is Knuckle of V and Boneless. I thought those were really interesting. It, insofar as they're very different <laughs> monsters than what you see in your typical book of scary folklore for kids. Uh, Knuckle of V, speaking of horses, apparently looks like a rider upon a horse, like when you see its shadow or its silhouette. Uh, but then you come to find out that it's like this big stinking gob of a aquatic mammal of some kind. And it's got like two different, you know, the, the rider part and the, the horse looking part are like, it almost sounds like they're two uh, parts of the monster's body that act independently of each other. And it's got like yellow skin and black blood that courses through its throbbing veins. Um <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's really disgusting. Um, I think it also said that the human head is like three times bigger than a normal human head or something like that. Yeah, like I could not get a handle on the proportions or just what this thing looked like. It's just a mess. Um, and it is kind of funny for all of like those gross, horrifying descriptions. 
the you know the way the monster actually acts in the story is kind of like very non-threatening uh to a degree because you know somebody comes across it on a road and it's just kind of like flippering <laughs> behind him you know kind of like a leopard seal on land like oh like i don't think robert d sansuzi actually says anything like that but for some reason, that's the image I had stuck in my head that this guy's trying to like ignore this abomination behind them, and Knuckle of is just behind him, like, oh, 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 I'm gonna get you. I'm gonna get you. <laughs> and the guy's like, no, I'm not gonna look at you. I'm gonna jump into this lake over here. And Knuckle of just trying to get him with its weird gross bulbous flipper like oh oh get get on back here get on back here now (laughs) so it's like equal parts um hilarious and horrifying uh (laughs) and the monster and boneless is more or less the same thing it's basically a big old blob that uh nobody no two people can agree on what it looks like and i thought that was kind of an eerie touch because there's one moment where a farmer thinks he's killed the thing or it by throwing an axe at it and uh like him and three two or three buddies are in the process of burying it and even as like they're all standing around you know the the ditch the pit together burying this thing none of them can agree what they see i thought that was almost kind of like a bit of a cosmic horror vibe popping up in you know uh antiquated folklore was which was kind of unexpected totally uh, yeah, and uh, like some people see it as like a human with white flesh. <laughs> some people just see it as a blob. Um, and yeah, I think both of them like they they get all uppity once you start praying or using the name of the Lord. They're like, don't do that. <laughs> it hurts my non ears, you know, whatever. Um I re- yeah, so anyway, Boneless and Knuckle of E, really weird. And then, um, slightly more traditional, it's not the last story, but the second to last story I thought was a lot of fun. You know, we've mentioned, I've mentioned before that every now and then, um, I guess it just depends on my disposition or the type of, the type of story being told, but I like usually when... Uh, you add a little ad- a little adventure to the horror stew. So the second to last story is the Goblin Spider, um, which I guess you could say is reminiscent to me of like, you know, the the ancient myths or epics of uh, Greek mythology, like Jason and the Argonauts, where it's basically a hero traveling to a desolate location and they have to do battle with a giant horrendous beast in this case it's a goblin spider that's like all white and gross and it bleeds white blood um but i thought it was cool because immediately preceding like the final confrontation with the goblin spider like a whole host of crazy ass japanese demons (laughs) come out and uh, it's like a celebrity death match between uh, the the samurai and his his assistant. Yeah, and all these crazy uh, demons that warrant nothing more than like a quick description. Is this the yeah. one where there's like a woman and then her like like a beautiful woman, but then like her neck gets really mm-hmm. yeah. This one very much reminded me of like various uh, 
Chinese and Japanese horror movies that I've seen over the years. Like, um, mm-hmm. I can't remember what it was called, but there was one that I watched a while ago. It was, this is a Japanese story, but it was a Chinese, but it had all that, like, you know, necks elongating and stuff like that. It very, it very much feels mm-hmm. like, yeah, that like, like, um, kind of like, uh, mixing like Kung Fu, cinematography and energy where everything's like really whipping by and happening mm-hmm. really quickly with like really weird gore horror effects for these folklore creatures. Um, yeah. So this story is like, I see where, and again, not to say that Chinese and Japanese are like the same, but like you can kind of see the roots of like where that filmmaking style might've come from with the energy with which a folklore like this would have been told. I think yeah, that's a great point. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right because I don't speak Mandarin. I don't even know what language this was in. <laughs> um, but it's Mo, M-O, a.k.a. The Boxer's Omen. So check that one out if you haven't seen that yet. It's really crazy. <laughs> I feel like I've heard of that one. Um, ahead, Speaking of uh, Stephen Gamble, as you did earlier, what did you think of the illustrations from this volume, which are from... Catherine Coville and Jacqueline da, 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 da. Rogers. I'm familiar with Catherine Coville as a function of she illustrated a lot of Bruce Coville's books. I remember she had a very distinctive style. I remember always fixating on the noses in Bruce Coville's books, the illustrations. Like there's just something weirdly hmm. kind of like gnomish almost about the noses that she draws. They're like very, or Santa Clausy. They're like very like. W.C. Fields kind of noses, like very ruddy and round. <laughs> uh, but I'm not familiar with Jacqueline Rogers. I have to look back at some of these now. So I don't know if these were done in collaboration or she... if it was like a switch off, like one illustrator did this one and then another illustrator did that one. Well, see, I'm looking at um, where do you, where do you see Jacqueline Rogers' name listed? Because the title page just says illustrated by Catherine Koval. Oh, I okay. I am re- maybe. Maybe Jacqueline Rogers did the second volume because I am looking at one that is yeah, a combination I, I of think, the first two yeah. short and shivery books. So maybe all the ones in the first volume are Catherine oh, Coville okay. and all the ones in the second volume yeah. are uh, Jacqueline Rogers. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I I like Catherine Coville's style. Um, I, this is the thing that frustrates me <laughs> about... Um, art is that I wish I was more well-versed in it to speak at least halfway, not even eloquently, but just like knowledgeable about it, you know, outside of just, I like the way she draws the pictures. (laughs) Um, That's, yeah, that's about the best I can do. Yeah. There are some cool illustrations. I would say, again, I guess if I'm being mean to San Susie, I can maybe be a little mean to Catherine Coville. Um, I don't, know that i find her style that oh, sure. particularly well suited to horror specifically yeah it feels like the kind of illustrations you would get when they you know want to redo illustrations in a book because they thought the originals were too scary or something <laughs> which again i feel like that's a mean thing to say what did come across my mind actually was um as i looked through some of these i'm like these don't feel entirely dissimilar to what you might actually see in a great illustrated classic, like kind of mm. like what you're saying, you know, a bit 
on the sanitized side. Yeah. Um, you know, like this fearsome werewolf that just looks like a big old good boy <laughs> lolling its tongue on the sled like, nom, yeah. Nom, nom. <laughs> yeah, that one almost made me laugh out loud when I was picturing this awful, terrible, slavering demon wolf chasing after this guy in his sled. And then, yeah, you turn the page and it's like, oh, who's a good boy? Who's a good boy? <laughs> oh, I am. I'm the good boy. Me and Knuckleby. Yeah. Oh, man. If Ke- I think it's maybe a good thing that she didn't illustrate Knuckleby or Boneless. <laughs> what we would have gotten. Yeah. One can only imagine. Again, you know, no no, no offense, Catherine. Um, I think her style fits kind of the, the stately feel of mm-hmm. Robert D. Sansusi's retellings of, of some of these. Like, you know, it's a good fit for some of them, but, you yeah. know, some of the more maybe rambunctious stories, you know, needed a little needed a little something to zhuzh them up. Um, but yeah, but yeah, it's not a knock against her as an artist in general because she is obviously quite accomplished. Yeah, I'm not trying to say she's untalented. I think her best illustrations... Right in this book for me are the ones that are for the more kind of melancholy stories. They work a little bit better for that, uh, for those like, um, and I'll put a couple of these up on our Instagram for people who want to check that out and see what her style was. The one for uh, the adventure of the German student, which is like kind of a love story with a ghost has Mm. like a, the woman in black, you know, hugging herself in the rain at the bottom of the, I guess it's not gallows if there's a guillotine instead of a hangman's noose, but you know, the executioner platform or whatever. And then I would still call them gallows. Yeah. She has a good haunted look about her. It's just not like a creepy style really. Yep. That's the one. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Not garish at all. Just, um, manicured like, uh, yeah. And like when you look at, um, the German student and that illustration and even, um, the uh you know the woman just from the perspective that it's uh the distance in the in the illustration you know they almost kind of look like cute little doll people yeah um and it's so it's so funny looking at the um oh gosh whatever they're called you know the the socks (laughs) that he's wearing (laughs) you know with his buckled shoes for some reason you know what this made me think of I went through a president phase as a kid, like in third grade, where I just became really interested in the lives of the presidents and, you know, to a certain degree, other historical figures. Um, I loved, as a kid, the uh, books by David Adler, a picture book of George Washington, a picture book of Thomas Jefferson. Do Do you recall any of those by the name? Not by name. Let me look it up. That's what this makes me think of. Like, kind of very docile illustrations. Um, you know, especially, yeah, like the the pon- you know, the ponytailed hair and everything. Mm-hmm. That's especially like what uh, the illustration to the German student makes me think of. Those books I read <laughs> as a kid. I came up with a book... This has David Adler's name nowhere on it, so I'm not sure what the connection is here. But it's The Legend of Naranja, and it's uh, an orange Mm. with leaves. It's an orange in 
um, an orange in, in running shoes that's jogging with leaves for hair that I think is meant to evoke Donald Trump. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. Brave Books has partnered with Andrew Gambersky and Anna Paulina Luna to write The Legend of Naranja, a Christian children's book that teaches kids about the importance of doing the right thing. Okay. So it might be Donald Trump. Yes. Definitely not the one I read as a kid. I can tell you that for sure. Go. One of the user's reviews is, um, I feel moved to say, go orange man. And thanks for giving us your all. I'm trying to see if this is canonically supposed to be, is this textually meant to look like Donald Trump or, okay, here's a one-star review, political propaganda. Propaganda disguised as a children's book, a malicious attempt to get children whose minds are not mature enough to consider the bias of the author to believe the 2020 election was stolen. This kind of indoctrination takes place in North Korea and China. I am shocked to find it in the USA. Okay. So yes, this is. (laughs) That's so funny. I honestly thought this was going to be a book like the stinky cheese man or something like a satire making fun of Donald Trump (laughs) through this like little Tropicana guy with this crazy hair, but it's supposed to be venerating (laughs) Donald Trump, (laughs) but it's making him a literal orange. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. This is like that, that, uh, that bit you see in comedy sometimes where like, I know they did it in the producers, where you see Nathan Lane turn to the the jury of all the old biddies at one point, he's like, "Don't help me." <laughs> <laughs> it's like that thing. It's like Donald Trump. He just turns to the authors, like, "Don't help me, <laughs> please stop." All right, a picture book of George oh, Washington. Well, the paths we trod. Yeah, sorry for that. Uh, I have no idea yeah. why that came up when I looked up David Adler, um, but I found a picture book of George Washington, and no, it still does not look familiar to me. So there you go. Mm, okay. Yeah, they were kind of ubiquitous in my media centers growing up. Um, but anyway, yeah, just the kind of same feeling, if not necessarily the same aesthetic or the same stylistic choices. I don't know. I just get the same vibe of like docility. If that's the right word, I I might've just made it up anyway. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, this book was a pretty big part of my upbringing. Um, I remember re reading it a lot and, um, you know, I think it has its, it's good traits. I, 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 I do, want to um oh gee i don't know if i can do it in any way that wouldn't lead to me just repeating myself um i just appreciate it i appreciated what robert de De sansusi set out to do and kind of building these like bits and scraps of folklore up into proper narratives with you know for a short story like a three-act structure like i thought if that's what he set out to do he achieved it well in this volume and whether you know each individual story is to your liking that's just you know the gamble you you place with any anthology um but overall i'd say this is a this is a worthy addition to the pantheon if we can even call it that of uh, scary folklore books for kids so thanks mr sansusi rest in peace and um i appreciate you yeah, I guess I the most valuable thing about it to me is the fact that it 
gathers all of these various tales from different sources and puts them in one. I could see myself getting this book out of the library when I was a kid and then maybe like trying to trace some of the more interesting tales back to their source and then like proceeding from there to learn more about, you know, like, oh, I'd like to read more Russian folk tales or whatever. Maybe I would then go get a book about that. Um, so, you know, in terms of like as a content aggregator, I'll give uh, <laughs> Sansusi a pass that I did not give, you know, the fat Jew or whatever that, what was that? Do you remember that account? <laughs> there was some kind of drama around him. Anyway, <laughs> maybe I should cut this out. Cause I'm, I'm fairly sure his name I... was like, hold on. I'm going <laughs> to Google it again to see if I'm remembering this oh incorrectly. Oh, the fat Jewish. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. There was some controversy with him. He was like a content aggregator who maybe wasn't citing his sources properly or something. Anyway, it doesn't matter, but he was a real guy. Oh. I'm not just creating a slur over here. <laughs> he called himself okay, the fat Jew. It wasn't... We are so relieved to know that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So anyway, um, <laughs> hey, do you want to yell at me? Our email address is blackmagictreehousepod at gmail.com. You can come find me on the Facebook uh, group that we have. Black Magic Treehouse podcast, probably. I feel like it'll come up if you type in <laughs> yeah. Black Magic Treehouse. We have an Instagram where I always post the covers yep. of the books we talk about. Sometimes AI generated covers for if we don't have a cover for a topic that we are talking about. Um, I know somebody who follows us, I remember seeing a post was very against AI. So sorry, it's only because we don't get paid for this podcast and we can't pay somebody to come up with artwork for us that I sometimes use AI just to get the job done. Um, I think that's all of our things, right? I'm sorry, I didn't have an original drawing to go with Evil Mirror. We had to do what we could. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would say that does it for Short and Shivery today. And, you know, this episode is not very short. <laughs> Maybe shivery. I know. We're just at the two-hour mark now. Oh, goodness. The pads we trod in these things sometimes. My, my word. But, uh, yes, please do reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Any uh, books of folklore or bits of folklore that you read or remembered from your childhood that you'd like to share with us, um, write to us in the email. Write to us on Instagram. I said all this already. Yeah, he did. I was just, you know, I don't know. Well, I don't know, lasagna. I don't know. <laughs> um, do you know what Dwight H. Colby, a.k.a. Whitey, from the 1972 class of South Windsor, Connecticut High School's favorite saying was? It's advice that I think we could all... What was Dwight H. Colby's favorite saying? Stoke it! (laughs) Oh, Dwight.